Well, today we come to the end of a series that we've been talking about over the last few weeks, in which we've talked about Christmas. Look, Christmas gets cluttered, doesn't it? And uh, if you've been here the last few weeks, you'll know that all over this stage we had Christmas stuff, toys and sports equipment and yard equipment and all these things that have to be done. And, And we talked in the first week of this series about the fact that when people were asked in a survey... They responded and said that for 75 or so percent of people who responded to a survey said that they feel more stress at Christmas time than they do joy. And I don't know, does that resonate for anybody? I expect about 75 percent of hands to go up in the room. Does it resonate with anybody? A bit of stress at Christmas time? Wow, so you've all been paying attention, it's been great. So we have spent the last few weeks decluttering Christmas. We've taken the last few weeks on an hour or two each Sunday morning to talk about what's truly important. We talked about relationships, we talked about serving, we talked about giving, all these important things. And as we did, we took things away. And today, we focus on Jesus. Could be an issue because he's a baby and he needs parents, but we might have decluttered the parents out of the picture. (laughs) But you get the point, right? Things get cluttered and we're making room for Jesus, particularly we're making room for the belief that we talk about at Christmas time. We live in in a social media crazy world, Insta snap face, right? It's everywhere, And on social media, people tend to express their opinions. Twitter, anybody? People express their opinions. And out there in the world, there are thousands of different religions. There are hundreds of thousands of different um, denominations, if you like, within each of those religions. And there are billions of believers in all those religions all around the world. And it seems like a lot of them like to express their opinion and their beliefs on social media. We are bombarded with convictions, we are cluttered with convictions. And so this morning, I want to take a moment to declutter Christmas convictions, to bring it down and talk about the one belief, the one singular belief that stands at the heart of Christmas, the Incarnation the Incarnation. Now, I know, it's a theologically heavy sort of word, right? It's a, it's a word that you probably wouldn't hear, um, hear me use in general conversation. Although, I was talking about this message the other week with my girls, we were out on a walk and we talk about the messages and um, I, I get their feedback, right? And uh, <laughs> she kept saying the incarceration of Jesus. I thought, no, 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 come back at Easter time, we'll talk about that. But we're talking about the incarnation of Jesus. So, it's a heavy theological word and I generally wouldn't use it in conversation, but then I also heard it over the airwaves all the time. At Christmas time, you know, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. I heard those words over the speaker system at Wollongong Central. Now, if Wollongong Central thinks it's important, I think we should talk about it, don't you? The incarnation. Now, what we're going to do to, to unpack this idea for us this morning is we're going to turn to the book, the letter 
of 1 John. Now, we read this a bit earlier, but what you didn't know is there, there are three letters that John wrote that we have in the New Testament. These letters were written in the first century by John, who was one of the eyewitnesses and, and lived with Jesus for a number of years while Jesus lived, taught and preached. He also wrote a gospel, uh, you might know the book of John in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So, he wrote that one as well and he's often known as the theologian, which will give you an understanding as to why we're talking about the Incarnation using his uh, letter. So, if you read this in the message, all right, if you read 1 John 1 in the message, he writes this about the Incarnation, the infinite life of God Himself took shape before us. Isn't that nice? Isn't that a nice way of writing it? I think it's quite poetic, I like it. What he says is the real life living God came down from heaven to get to know us, but primarily to let us get to know Him. That's what we believe about the Incarnation. So, the idea of God's walking among humans in the first century when John is writing this letter is not unusual, right? This is the world of the Greeks and the Romans, the gods live on Mount Olympus and the gods are forever coming down to earth, walking among human beings and, and, and causing all sorts of mischief and meddling in the lives of human beings. They disguise themselves as humans, sometimes, but, uh, and, and if you read the stories of the Greek myths and the Roman myths, you'll find that it really reads like a soap opera. It's, it's quite a lot of adult content, to be honest with you. And uh, the gods are not at all like Jesus. And this is what John is trying to say. He's writing to these people who, who grew up with the stories of gods walking among men. And he writes this, he writes of the Incarnation. See, Incarnation is fundamentally different from all the other stories of gods walking on the earth. Because for one thing, the gods of the Greeks and the Romans would never take off their divinity and become human. It's, it's not, I'm, not, I'm not even sure if it's even possible for them. But it, aside from that, they're far too prideful, the gods of the Greek and Roman world. So, for the idea of a God in heaven coming to earth and walking among humans as a human doesn't fit with their stories and that is one thing John is trying to say. The other thing that John is trying to say in writing this letter is he wants to be very clear that when he talks about God walking among humans, he's not talking about a myth or a legend or, or a fun story. He opens his letter, 1 John 1, 1 to 2, let me read it to you from the message. From the very first day, we were there taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears, we saw it with our own eyes, we verified it with our own hands. John and his friends were there. They saw, they heard, they touched. All the stories you've ever heard about Jesus, when He walks on water, when He feeds 4,000 or 5,000 people, when He calms the storm, when He heals the blind guy, when He heals the lame guy, when He heals another blind guy, when He raises Lazarus from the dead, when He Himself rises from the dead, all these things, they were there. John is saying, I have an eyewitness account of these things happening. I saw it, I heard it, I touched it. I probably smelled it. Should have written that. Smells very powerful, did you know that? 
When Jesus offered and gave his most profound teachings, the most in-depth stories, they were there. They heard them first. They saw him on the mountainside when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. They saw God among men. But they were also there. That's a very old-timey phone ring. Who got a phone for Christmas? They were there, right? But they weren't just there when he did all these incredible supernatural sort of things. They were there also. They were there when he rung. How embarrassing is that, right? Now you just want to crawl up and... They were there... When Jesus got tired, they were there when Jesus cried, they were there when Jesus wept, they were there when Jesus wrestled with temptation, when Jesus debated the decisions of God the Father. I I think some of them were perhaps also there when Jesus lost Joseph. Do you ever think about where Joseph went in the life story of Jesus? There is a story of loss there that I don't think we always appreciate and understand. But Jesus' mother and friends were there in that time. They saw the incarnation. They saw that Jesus was God. They also saw that He was human. They saw that God knew, therefore, what it was like to be human. And you have to admit, Jesus' life wasn't all that luxurious, luxury. He was homeless, poor, hungry, hunted, tempted, oppressed, humiliated, crucified, rejected. Jesus knew life and Jesus was God at the same point. Okay then, so what? So what? What does it matter that the infinite life of God came and lived among us, was born as a baby? What? So what? Why is John so keen in his letter to write it? Well, the first reason he's keen, as we read in verse 3 and 4, is he says, we saw it, we heard it, and he says, our motive for writing is simply this, we want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. He wants to share with us and with those who wrote the letter to in the first place, the joy He has. In the same way that we get all the kids out here on Christmas morning and we look at all their toys, we play with them and all that sort of stuff, we, would, we just want to share in their joy. The same reason we give gifts to our kids is to share in the joy because it makes us twice as happy, twice as joyful. Joy, your joy will double our joy. That's right, yeah? Is that why everybody gave gifts today? I hope it wasn't because you just felt like you had to. (laughs) There was a few mumbles there. (laughs) Hmm. So this morning, we really just want you to experience the joy of Christmas. The joy of knowing that the incarnation is all about 
Because Jesus was born for relationship, to get to know you and so that you could get to know God. John continues, verse 5, this in essence is the message we heard from Christ and are passing on to you. The message is this, God is light, pure light, not a trace of darkness in Him. If we walk in the light, God Himself being the light, this is verse 7, we also experience a shared life with one another. As the sacrificed blood of Jesus, God's Son purges all our sin. See, there's, a, there's, a, there's also an aside here. Not only does our relationship with God get affected when we understand that God understands humanity and us, but our relationship with each other changes as our relationship with God grows. So the point is this, there is a sort of life that we can have, a sort of life of fellowship and joy and hope and peace that comes from being purged of all our sins and cleansed of our unrighteousness. If, we, uh, if you were to look up verse 9, did I put verse 9 in there? I might not have. This is the kind of life that you can have and you can live. A life of love, light and joy some parts of the Bible call it a life of heaven or, or eternal life. But according to verse 9, there are two things that Jesus came to address in becoming human, in the incarnation. Two things. Number one, to forgive our sins. To forgive our sins. Hey, I'm a preacher, I talk about this all the time, right? It's fairly obvious, He comes to forgive our sins. Anything you've done wrong, every offence, misdemeanour or mistake is completely forgiven if you ask. Pure and simple, that's what we believe is true because of the Incarnation. You no longer have to worry about any sort of punishment or retribution from God, you don't have to be concerned about a giant lightning bolt coming to hit you from heaven, you can be forgiven. That's the first thing. Because if you live a life with guilt tying you up in knots, it distracts and destroys the other relationships of your life and it gets in the way of your relationship with Jesus. Because if Jesus is pure light and, and, and there is something between you and Jesus, it casts a shadow, doesn't it? Does everyone kind of see that picture? It casts a shadow. But see, that's not where verse 9 ends. That's, that's fairly simple, fairly self-explanatory. But verse 9 also says, He will purify your unrighteousness. He will purify your unrighteousness. When we do the wrong thing, when we do things that, that we feel are, are sinful and are morally bad, we can feel a little bit impure, a little bit tainted, a little bit poisoned. Almost as though we can start to believe that there's something wrong with us. There is something broken or twisted within us that drives us towards behaviour we know is wrong. The Apostle Paul writes in his books, I know the things I shouldn't do, but I do them anyway. I know the things that I should do, but I don't do. It's almost as though he feels there's something within inside of him, a thorn in the flesh... It's almost as though there is something fundamentally wrong or broken about us that means we behave in ways that are impure, that hurt other people. We can feel flawed, weak, 
unworthy, or in the words of the Old Testament, we can feel unholy, unworthy of the attention of God. But the joy of Christmas, the belief in the Incarnation says that God in heaven steps out of heaven, comes round to you and lived so that you could know and understand and believe that God forgives sins and purifies unrighteousness. Jesus' birth, life, death and resurrection prove His power to make you whole and clean, to tell you that you are valuable, that you are infinitely valuable to God, regardless of anything you've done or anything that has been done to you, you are of infinite value to God, to communicate His love and His acceptance. So, in response to this this morning, this incarnation, we have a whole bunch of candles out here and uh, I'm going to open it up for everybody to come and to light a candle for yourself. We're going to play some music and in, in, in lighting this candle, I want you to understand that the, the significance of lighting these candles is to take to yourself the light of God, to know the life that God has for you, to know that you are valuable, to know that you are infinitely more important than you could possibly imagine. Because God took off all the glory of heaven, just to come and tell you that, and to make it possible for you to have a relationship with God of the universe.